Do you ever ask yourself the question, what's your greatest desire in life? What do you think would bring you the greatest satisfaction? When I ask this question, I think uh, for most of us, the deepest desire that we have is a desire for something you could call fellowship or even intimacy. It's the desire to be fully known and not just known, but completely accepted as known. Uh, you can see this, I think, in, in the Garden of Eden in, with Adam and Eve before the fall. And I think it's the thing you see they're missing after the fall. Before the fall, Adam says, this is bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. She's completely satisfying to him. They're, they know each other completely. They're naked and not ashamed. And then when sin enters the world, all of that comes apart. Immediately, they don't trust each other. There's a, condition, a conditional aspect to their relationship, to their acceptance of each other. And I think in our fallen condition, we also desire some return to that deep intimacy, to be really completely known and also completely and unconditionally accepted. We want intimacy. We know it's the thing we need. What the world we needs now is love sweet love and yet it's something we can't quite attain well we've been looking at the great high priestly prayer at John chapter 17 for a few weeks now and we noticed last time that the goal of Jesus prayer that the father would sanctify us the goal of that prayer was that we would be one that we would be one just as the father and the son of God are one what an amazing thing to ask that we would experience the same depth of fellowship the same depth of intimacy just as uh, the scripture says of a married couple, the two shall become one. There's still two, but they're one. And that's God's design in marriage, and that's God's uh, experience in the eternal fellowship of the Trinity. And it's the goal of this prayer. Well, if you have a Bible handy, I think I'd invite you to find it and open it up to John chapter 17. We're going to look at uh, this a little bit further. Uh, John 17, let me just read uh, part of this 17, 17. <laughs> so verse 17 of chapter 17, sanctify them in the truth, Jesus prays. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. For their sakes I sanctify myself, 
that they themselves also may be sanctified in truth. I don't ask on behalf of these alone, that is the disciples sitting there in front of him, but for those also who believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you sent me. The glory which you've given me, I've given to them, that they may be one, just as we are one, I in them, you in me, that they may be perfected in unity or oneness, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you have loved me. This idea of our union with God in Christ by the Spirit is at the very heart of the gospel. It is the restoration of perfect intimacy. It's the restoration of being known and unconditionally loved or accepted. And so uh, that's what we see Jesus praying for here, that this sanctification, this Setting apart is for the purpose of union. That's interesting, isn't it? There's a calling out of his people. And uh, as we saw last week, the work of the cross actually accomplishes our reconciliation together with one another in one new man, body of Christ. And then reconciles us together as one new man to the Father in Christ by the Spirit. What an amazing, amazing thing. There's, in fact, the very nature of our salvation is knowing someone, as Jesus said, this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. And now we've seen that that reunion with God in Christ is also a reunion with one another in Christ. So that we now, even now, within the fellowship of the body of Christ, have the opportunity to experience this reality of deep fellowship with one another. Knowing each other, and unconditionally accepting each other. How do you do that? How do you unconditionally accept accept someone? You realize that in Christ, God has unconditionally accepted you. He overlooks what's wrong with you. He restores you to righteousness in Christ. And so he accepts you perfectly just as you are. And so we have the opportunity in the church to do that very thing for each other. And then to extend that into the world, to show the love of Christ, especially in our relationship to each other in the church. If we live in that relationship in front of the world, they will see that God loves us by the way we love each other. That's just what Jesus says right here 
He says, I in them, you in me, that they may be perfected in unity so that the world will know that you sent me and loved them <laughs> even as you have loved me. So how, do, how does the world know God loves the church? In the love we share with each other, in our union with each other. Well, that's where we've gotten last week, but I, I, we've seen that the goal of this sanctification that Jesus prays for is that we would be one. Now, and we've seen how Jesus accomplishes that union by the work of the cross. That's what we looked at in Ephesians chapter 2 last week. And now I want to look again at the quality of this union. He says that they may be one, they may all be one, just as we are one. Now, you can't really think of this. You can't really understand how the Father and the Son, eternal God, how, how one are they? <laughs> well, there's only one God. There's three persons and one God. They're as one as one can be, and yet they have a distinction of persons in one being. So they have uh, everlasting, eternal fellowship of persons in one God. Now, I'm trying to explain to you the Trinity, which uh, is a little beyond any explanation that I'm capable of giving, and yet that's what we see. And in fact, humanity is created to reflect that eternal, intimate relationship in family life, in the love of a husband and his wife, in the uh, in the offspring of children, in the family of humanity, that is God's intention in creation. We're created to walk in society, in fellowship, in the expression of the love of God in relation to each other. And that is, in fact, what Christ restores in his sacrifice on the cross, that great intimate fellowship. Now, we're, we aren't seeing the full-fledged version of it yet, but just as the scripture says, 1 John chapter 3, you know that verse I quote all the time, we don't know what we will be, but we know that when we see him, when we see him, we'll be like him because we'll see him as he is. And so that fellowship that he enjoys, that eternal fellowship, perfect intimate fellowship that he has with the Father and the Spirit, we will share with him and in him with the Father by the Spirit and with one another. Wow. <laughs> wow. That is the very nature of eternal life. That's what we read at the very beginning of this prayer. This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. And now we know that as we know him, we also know each other. 
as we walk in fellowship with him, our fellowship with each other is also restored. What an amazing thing. Well, today, I want to look a little more into this idea, just as we are one. And I want to notice that, again, I've noticed this before, but in John chapter 17, this is the closing prayer on the whole book of John. And so there's a very real sense in which Jesus' prayer here is uh, like the concluding paragraph, the concluding prayer of the theology of the whole book of John. And so we see reflected in what Jesus prays for the disciples, what John has shown in the narrative of the book all the way up until this point. And really it continues as we proceed from here. Uh, but this is sort of the pinnacle, uh, the climax of the plot, if you will, of the story of the gospel according to John. So today I wanted to do another sort of pass through the book of John and think about and how is the father, how are the father and the son one? I want us to notice the union of the father and the son in the book of John. And so we go all the way back to the beginning of the book. Of course, the very beginning of the book of John, the son of God is the logos of God, the very word of God the communication of God, the agent. The Son is the agent of the Father, and he does this perfectly, of course. And we see this reflected throughout the book. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word was with God. So there's a shared essence or being and a fellowship at the same time. What a magnificent thing that is. And so... He's the word of God, the, the agency of God, the expression of God. Uh, in verse 18 of chapter 1, we read this. No one has seen God at any time, the only begotten, God's one and only, who is in the bosom of the Father. He has revealed him or explained him. Uh, so the Son of God, the only begotten, lives in perfect fellowship. He is the one, the one, who has seen God and the Father and knows God the Father and loves God the Father. In chapter 7, Chapter 7, verse 29. And I think I have to read. Uh, yeah, or it's chapter 7, verse 29. Jesus says, well, I got to read verse 28 for the context. Jesus cried out in the temple, teaching and saying, you both know me and know where I am from and I have not come of myself. But he who sent me is true, whom you do not know. I know him because I am from him and he sent me. 
So Jesus is making a claim that his relationship, fellowship with the Father, is unique among men. He's the one and the only one who knows him. In chapter 14, verse 31, But so that the world may know that I love the Father, I do exactly as the Father commanded me. Now this is right after he said, the one who loves me obeys my commands. <laughs> so he's saying, look, your, your keeping of my commandments is the reflection of your love for me. And he says the same thing is true about me in reference to the Father. He says, uh, because I love the Father, I do exactly as the Father says. And he's doing that in front of the world. So he says, so that the world may know that I love the Father, I do exactly as the Father commanded me. So Jesus, first of all, if we think about the oneness between the Father and the Son, between Jesus and the Father. Number one on our list is the Son knows and loves the Father, and that's an eternal relationship. The second thing we want to notice is that the Son was sanctified or set apart by the Father. So uh, chapter 10, verse 36, Jesus is speaking, and he says, do you say of him whom the Father sanctified and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said, I am the Son of God. So Jesus is in this verbal battle with the uh, leaders there in Jerusalem, and he's saying, look, are you accusing me of blasphemy? I'm the one who was sanctified by the Father and sent. Jesus himself was set apart by God. The Son of God was set apart, made holy, uh, set apart for God's special purpose, solely for God, only to God, to be sent into the world. So Jesus, the Son, was sanctified by the Father. And we've seen this reflected in the prayer when he says, I'm you sanctified me to be sent, I sanctified them to be sent. In, uh, in the verse we just read in chapter 17, verse 17. The Son, as we just noticed, is number three, sent by the Father. So this is how their union operates in, uh, in the book of John. We just saw that in chapter 10. He was sanctified and sent. And Jesus repeatedly says that is why he never acts on his own. He never acts alone. He's never alone. He always walks in perfect, intimate fellowship with the Father. And by that, he always does exactly what the Father's doing. He always says exactly what the Father is saying. He is the Word of God who speaks the words of God. So the third thing on our list 
is that he's sent. And in the same way, he says, we're sanctified to be sent. He says, you sent me into the world. This is in chapter 17 again. I send them into the world the same way you sent me. Then the fourth thing I want to notice about the union of the Father and the Son in the book of John is that the Son proceeds from the Father. Now, this is an ancient uh, uh, technical way to talk about the eternal relation. So it's a kind of explanation of the Trinity, if you will, that uh, what does it mean if we say that Jesus is, or that the Son of God is the only begotten Son of God. Well, we don't mean that he came into existence. He's eternal God. He always has existed. So, like the ancient creed says, he eternally proceeds from the Father. But that's an eternal relationship. He never started proceeding from the Father. He eternally proceeds. Now, that takes us back to chapter 1, verse 18. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten, the one and only of God. And it uses the word begotten. And so we might read in another ancient creed, we read the phrase begotten, not made. And so this is an, an attempt to express this eternal relationship. The Son proceeds from the Father in chapter 8, verse 42. Jesus said to them, If God were your Father, you would love me, for I proceeded forth and have come from God. I have not even come on my own initiative, but he sent me. So Jesus is always pictured in the book of John as the sent one, the one who comes from the Father, the one who proceeds forth from God. Uh, And so that's relationship he has to the Father. That's an aspect of their unity. Now, you should have noticed by now, that's the fourth thing we've talked about, uh, their unity. Their unity, their oneness, their union. There's two persons we're talking about here, but there's oneness in the two persons. And so we would extend this, of course, also to the Holy Spirit in talking about the Trinity. There's one God, one, one. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. And yet there's an eternal relation between the three persons of God. And so uh, the Son proceeds from the Father. The fifth thing on our list here, and by the way, this list, there's, this list is printed in, in the bulletin, which you can get uh, there on the Facebook page. Um, the, and and I'll, I'll try to post this on the YouTube comments as well. I, I'm, I haven't done that before, so we'll see how that goes. <laughs> the, sun, the Son is the Word of the Father, and the Son speaks the words of the Father. 
you could see this in uh, in the book of Hebrews too, uh, at the very beginning that the Father has spoken to us in these last days in His Son. The Son is the Word of God, the speech of God, the communication of God. Uh, he is the message of God, not just the messenger, but also the message of God. So uh, we might notice here that he speaks the words of God, and we've talked about this before, but he also is the word of God. You see in Christ exactly what God the Father wants communicated. Exactly. Nothing out, nothing left out, and nothing extra included. Uh, no error, just exactly what the Father wants to communicate is communicated in the very person of the Son and communicated to us in his incarnation and in the scripture, which is inspired by the Spirit of God. But the Word of God primarily is in the person of Jesus Christ. And he speaks the words of God. We could see this in chapter 1, in the beginning was the Word, and so forth. And we can see this in chapter 12. Chapter 12, verse 49. Jesus says this, For I did not speak on my own initiative, but the Father himself who sent me has given me a commandment or a mandate as to what to say and what to speak. I know that his commandment is eternal life. Therefore, the things I speak, I speak just as the Father has told me. He's saying, look, the stakes could not be higher. They're life and death. And so I always say exactly what the Father is saying and once said. So Jesus is the word of God who speaks the words of God and he does so perfectly so that this is an expression of the union between Father and Son. Then we just read about this commandment, this mandate that the Father has for the Son and we find uh, that the sixth thing on our list is that the Son executes the Father's mandate. The Son carries out the mandate of the Father, which we just read, is eternal life. So we read in our prayer in chapter 17 that He gives eternal life to those the Father has given to Him. And now this, is, this theme is elaborated in John chapter 10, all the things about the Good Shepherd. In fact, we could call this carrying out, this Jesus carrying out the Father's mandate. We could call it the roundup because <laughs> it's the gathering of the flock, the sheep of the Good Shepherd. It's him speaking and the sheep hearing his voice and following him uh, because the Father has given them to the Son and the Father has drawn them. Jesus said, no one comes to me except the Father draws him. 
You didn't find Jesus. Jesus found you. You didn't choose Jesus, except that he chose you first. And it's because he chose you first that you chose him. And so the Father uh, draws them. And this is really elaborated in that idea that uh, John uh, features so prominently of the good shepherd and his sheep. So the, uh, the good shepherd loves the father's sheep. Uh, you could read about that in chapter 15. Uh, the, the good shepherd in chapter 10 is given. <laughs> the father has given the sheep to the shepherd in chapter 10. He leads the sheep. My sheep hear my voice. They follow. He leads the sheep. All of these things are really in John chapter 10. He says in 10.14 that he lays down his life for the sheep and takes it up again. So (laughs) the shepherd doesn't just die for the sheep and stay dead and leave them without a shepherd. He takes up his life again. He's restored to life again in the resurrection. And so he is our good shepherd today. He gives the father's sheep eternal life, he says. Those the father gives me, I give them eternal life. He keeps the father's sheep. So that's the same thing we've been talking about when Jesus prays, Father, keep them. He himself keeps the sheep. That's what shepherds do. And he says, I will raise them up in the last day. That's in chapter 6, verses 39 and 40. He says, I give them eternal life and I will raise them up in the last day. So this mandate from the Father to the Son, the Son carries out, well, this is us being drawn in to that eternal, intimate, loving fellowship of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And then finally, the last expression of the union of the Father and the Son is the Son returns to the Father. Uh, That's been the subject of the whole upper room discourse, right? Jesus says, I'm going to the Father, uh, starting in chapter 13. And that's why the disciples were getting a little bit of a panic. Like, what do you mean you're leaving? Well, he's leaving, but he's not leaving. So I just wanted to review these various ways in which you see the oneness of God the Father and God the Son. Because Jesus says, uh, in the same way they're one, he's praying for us to be one. He's sanctifying to send so that we may be one with the same oneness that he has with the Father. I think if we understand the idea of the union of Father and Son in the fellowship of the Trinity, that helps us understand the union we enjoy in the body of Christ and our union with Christ and then in Christ with the Father. This is all a work of the Spirit who comes to dwell in us. And 
then we experience that same sort of union with one another. In fact, the work of the cross accomplishes all of these things. So we've seen seven aspects of this unity, Father and Son. The Son knows and loves the Father. The Son is was sanctified by the Father. The Son was sent by the Father. The Son proceeds or comes from the Father. The Son is the Word and speaks the words of the Father. And the Son carries out the Father's mandate of eternal life. And it's in that that we, his sheep, are gathered into one flock. You remember Jesus talking about, uh, I have another sheepfold and I'm going to bring those sheep. Well, us Gentiles, we're that other sheepfold. And that's what we read about in Ephesians chapter 2 last Sunday that by the work of his cross, he brings Jews and Gentiles together into one new man. And so we're united. And then as one new man, we're reconciled to God in Christ. And then finally, the son returns to the father. So how is our oneness with one another and with God like this? Well, Jesus' concern in this whole prayer is the, the reality of active fellowship with God. Right from the very beginning, this is eternal life, that they may know you, the Father, and Jesus Christ, whom you've sent. And so this active res- fellowship with God results in our expression of his love and grace in our earthly relationships with each other, first of all, in the body of Christ, Uh, with others in the world around us, even with creation itself uh, when Christ comes. And even now, we experience a restored relationship with uh, the, the creation around us in Christ. So our unity lies in the Spirit activating us with the Word to give attention to Christ where we see the Father, to enjoy the love of Christ, to be overwhelmed by his grace, and so to be moved in our own hearts to take the risks involved in putting these things on display in the world. When we uh, are activated by the love of Christ to become loving, there's a certain vulnerability in that, and the courage of that comes from knowing the love of God. Uh, in Christ by the Spirit. And so we're willing to take these risks and putting putting these things on display in the world. That's really just a long way of saying loving others, uh, demonstrating the sacrificial humility of Christ so we can extend unconditional acceptance to anyone because we've received it from God. And so we grow in this, in these relationships, in the current, in the life we live now, which we live in the flesh and in the spirit, both. We have this competition going on in our souls, in our hearts and in our bodies. And yet we can experience more and more the love of God in Christ and have that love to share. And so as we read in Ephesians, we can uh, <clears throat> we can 
maintain unity in the bond of peace, maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. These are things God does in and through us, and we participate as God does these things in and through us. This really ultimately comes down to a trust issue. Do I, do I know Christ? Do I believe? And that's why in the book of John, it's always, always, always a question of belief. Believing in the one who sent Christ. Believing in Christ. And this, is a, this isn't just a, I think something is true belief. It's a, I trust the one who tells me kind of belief. I trust him. And as I trust him, I uh, grow in this union with God in Christ by the Spirit. And I grow in my union and unity with the body of Christ. And we together exhibit the love of Christ and the word of God in the world. I pray that that will be a reality in the life of our church, in the life of every church, in the life of the church. Lord, we thank you for your love for us exhibited in the person of Christ. Thank you for the work of the cross that redeems us, that draws us into one new man, that makes it possible for us to experience our union with God and with each other. And we thank you for these things in Jesus' name. Amen.